Dear church family, we live in a world that desires security, desires to be safe, to be insulated from harm and danger. This was evident immensely during the time of the COVID virus and our, as we watched in the world around us and in various countries, we saw various measures being put in place to, to protect, to try to keep it away from us, to insulate ourselves from the harm, the danger that could come our way. And friends, Christians are no different. We desire to be secure. We are looking for security. And this is evident all around us. We, we need it. And our, our needs for security as a Christian can only and will only be met in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the God of salvation, in the God of the scriptures. In the one who, as in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, is our only comfort in life and death. And the question that should be resonating through our minds, if we are looking for security, for the security that can be the Christians, the question that should be resonating through our minds is, how can I have that security? And how do I know about the security? How, how can I have it? And our catechism The Heidelberg Catechism says that we can know it, we can enjoy this only comfort in life and death in three three ways. There's three things that are necessary for for us to know and enjoy this security. The first, it says, is to know how great my, my sin and misery is. The second is how I may be delivered from from this my sins and my miseries. And the third is how should I then live having experienced the deliverance of God for his gratitude. We need to be in the two-handed grip of the Lord. We need to have the security of being in him for both life and death. And this morning we want to consider that first aspect of this knowledge that is necessary. And we want to do so from our passage in Romans chapter 3. And in a sense we're going to be brought into God's courtroom. We're going to be brought into his courtroom. And in the light of his standards, the word of God, we're going to hear charges that are going to be brought against us. We're going, to, we're going to hear evidence that's going to be presented, that's going to demonstrate how these charges are true and, and real. And finally, we're, we're going to be brought in to the time in our time in the courtroom where a conclusion is going to be made, a verdict is going to be rendered. And so we're going to do that by looking at Romans chapter 3, we're going to consider the verses 9 through 20. And at this time, I want to read verse 9 and then 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul says, God says, What then? 
Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now we know what things soever the law saith, and it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I'd also like you to turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 2, which you can find, I believe in your Psalters, page 32. Page 32, Lord's Day 2. I'd like to read the three questions associated with this Lord's Day. Whence knowest thou thy misery out of the law of God? What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, and Mark 12, verses 29 through 31. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So this morning we will consider the theme, summoned into God's court. And we want to look at it through three thoughts. The charge that's going to be brought against us. The case made by the Apostle Paul. The evidence that he presents. And the conviction that the word of God renders against us. Friends, being summoned into court is no pleasant experience. Difficult things are often said. Painful things need to be dealt with. And this morning is going to be no different as we enter into, as it were, God's courtroom, as we're summoned by God to hear charges read against us. We're going to, as we listen to Paul's case, God's case, We're going to be presented with truth that is not pleasing to natural man. It's going to be truth that is hard to hear. But friend, if it is going to be well with our souls, if it is going to be well for us for eternity where we enjoy and know God, it is essential that we come to grips with these hard realities about who we are by nature. In the epistle to the Romans, Paul, after a very brief introduction to the church at Rome in the beginning of chapter 1, gets to the very heart and the core of his message in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul here 
pronounces good news is present. The gospel of Christ is, is available. But in the fact that he brings good news, good news is only good in the context of a bad situation. And this is where Paul first wants to get to the root. And so in chapters, the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and our first portion of chapter 3, he unveils and details this bad situation that we as humans find ourselves in. Paul has already told us a number of things throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says we, we are without excuse because we know that there is a God, Romans 1.20. We know that there is this moral standard by which we ought to live. For the law, he says, is written on our hearts, Romans 2.15. But the question is, what have we done with that knowledge? Some attempt to ignore it, to push it away. Paul says, we suppress, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We hold the truth in unrighteousness, he says in Romans 1.18. We attempt to hold under this truth of God, that he, in fact that he exists and that he's written his moral standard on our hearts and he calls us to live by it. By nature, we want to ignore it. We want to do away with it. We want nothing to do with it. Children, maybe this is a little bit like if you have a pool at home or if you've gone to the beach and you have a beach ball. And if you ever try to hold that beach ball, you take it into the pool or into the, into the lake and you take that beach ball and you try to hold it underwater. You can do so for a little while. You can suppress, you can submerge the ball under the water for a little while. But eventually, either you let go or the ball pops up. And in a certain sense, this fact, we, we, suppress, we suppress the word of God, that we suppress the truth of his moral standard that's written on our hearts, that he exists. We can hide it. We can try to do that for a little while, but it will not last. There will be a point in time in our lives where we have to come to recognize that God is, He exists, and we must be right with Him. We must be right with Him. So how do we come to grips with this knowledge of who we are? Well, the Word of God, through the work of the Spirit, He has to show us who we are. And so our catechism asks this important question, where do, where do you know your misery? It's out of the law of God, out of the word of God. It is only as we allow the light of the scriptures to come and pass over our mind and over our heart that we become exposed for who we are. It is only in the light of his word, the ultimate standard, that we come to know that we are sinners and that we have chosen to ignore, to suppress his truth. And it is God's mercy that he comes to us through his word of truth, by his Holy Spirit, and convicts us of the reality that we are dead in sins and trespasses by showing it to us by his standard, his perfect standard. And so Paul begins in our passage by addressing First of all, who is being brought into the courtroom of God? What then, he says, are, are we better than they? And here we have this we and they. Who is Paul referring to? Well, he's, he's, addressing, he's been addressing the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's asking this question, 
Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Does their Jewishness somehow render them more acceptable to God, be able to come into his presence because of the fact that they were included in the covenant, the fact that they were circumcised, that they were brought up under the law? Did that make them better? Did that give them an advantage before God? Have you ever thought something along these lines? Well, I've grown up in a Christian home. My mom and dad, maybe children, you think, well, mom and dad are believers, so that might help me in my standing with God. Or maybe I went, you could say, I went to a Christian school. I had catechism all my life. I know the Bible, the stories of the Bible, the teachings of the scriptures. And maybe you're thinking or have thought in the past that somehow that has to give me some standing before God. Or maybe some of you are older. You've never trusted in Christ, and, but yet you say that you're seeking him. You have convictions. You've lived a, a pretty good life. You've never done anything morally bad or wicked. You've attended church all your life. You've, you've participated and helped out in the church community in, in many ways. You live a pretty good life compared to so many others. And maybe you have said, maybe that has to count for something before the Lord. Paul's answer is sharp and to the point. He does not mince any words with the Jews of his day, and he doesn't mince any words with us. No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jew and Gentile, for that they are all under sin. Absolutely not. You are not better than any other human being, the Apostle Paul says. We are all summoned to come before the presence of God into his courtroom and to hear the charges that he brings against us that we, by nature, are all under sin. All humanity under the same charge, under sin. Both Jew and Gentile. Whether you've been a long-time church member or whether you have just come off the, the street as, a, as an atheist, or whether you are a non-practicing, your neighbor, like your, maybe your neighbor is a non-practicing Roman Catholic or a Muslim neighbor, all are under sin. Whether you have the covenant sign of baptism on your forehead, whether your mom and dads are believers or not, whether you attend church regularly, coming up to hear the word of God, all are under sin. All come short of God's glory. What does Paul mean by all are under sin? To be under sin means to be under its dominion, under its power. John Calvin says that to be under sin means that we are justly condemned as sinners before God or that we are held under the curse which is due to sin. The imagery pictured here is that of a burden weighing us down. And children, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know the picture of 
Christian as he leaves the city of destruction, burdened by sin, with that burden on his back as, he, as, he, as he's going to this celestial city. A burden that must be dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this is the charge that the Apostle Paul brings against all humanity, against you, against me, against all. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I are under sin. And as this charge is read in the court, how will you plead? Do you see yourself as guilty? Worthy of God's just judgment? Or do you plead innocent? And my friend, if that's your if that's your plea, my question back to you is by what standard are you able to make that claim? By what standard can you say that you are innocent? The case that Paul comes is convincing. And in many ways, we could, at the end of verse 9, when he says, we are all under sin, he could stop there because this is the, the, the authoritative word of God. But yet Paul, wanting to make the case stick, as it were, comes with evidence. He makes this case absolutely certain. And in our second thought, he begins by presenting the evidence. And where does he go for the evidence? He goes to the very Word of God. It is written. The Word of God is Paul's standard by which he is going to make his case. The Word of God is his ultimate source of authority. And this is what's going to make the case stick and convict us of who we are by the work of the Spirit. All of life the Lord says, comes under the dominion of the Word of God, under the law of God. Nothing is free from its scrutiny and judgment. We will have to give an account for every thought that we've thought in our past life, every word that we've spoken, every deed that we've done. And so we need to examine our hearts and lives in light of the Word of God. And the Apostle Paul he, as he does so, he addresses both our first, our, our relationship with the Lord, this vertical relationship with, with the Lord, but he does not neglect to, to also examine how we've interacted on the horizontal plane with other people around us. And so he's going to present this fourfold case against humanity. He's going to first give a summary of, as it were, of his evidence, and then he's going to get very specific. He's going to address certain our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. We see the summary of the evidence in verses 10 through 12. It is a scripture-filled summary. And the summary is, is based off of Psalms 14 and 53, particularly verses 1 through 3 of these psalms. And there are a number of parallel thoughts in these three verses, in verses 10 through 12. We want to consider the parallel thoughts together. And it's very, in, in the structure of it, it's very uh, Hebrew in its method. We have 
two thoughts at the beginning and the end, and then we have another two parallel thoughts moving towards the center, and then at the very center, the core of Paul's summary, at the center of, of the, these verses. So we'll be examining it from beginning and end and moving in. And the summary of Paul's message is that there are none who seek after God at the end of verse 11. But he begins and ends with these two statements. In verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then at the end of verse 12, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. These two statements are all-encompassing. The first deals with our relationship with God, and the latter deals with our relationships with other people. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Everything we do is tainted with sin. God, who is righteous, uses his righteousness as the criteria to judge us, all of his creatures, and he finds us unrighteous. Then at verse 12, at the end, there is none that doeth good. This word good in the original language has, has the idea of describing our relationships to other people. In relationship to others, we do not do any good. In fact, we are prone, as the catechism says, to hate even our neighbor. But next in the summary, as, as the Apostle Paul moves into his, his core, verse, beginning of verse 11, he says, there is none that understands. And then beginning of verse 12, there is no one that is profitable. We have all become unprofitable in every area of our, of our life, in our thinking capacities. In our mind, there is, there is no perception or understanding. We are intellectually blind. Friend, there is no neutrality. We, we are either for God and living for Him, thinking thoughts after Him, or we are not for God and living for ourselves. By nature, we are so depraved that all we do is a liability to everyone and everything around us. To ourselves, to our families, to our spouse, to our children. Instead of leading them to God, we, we promote the, and promoting the glory of God, we, we promote ourselves and our own glory, our sin. We love our sin. We love, and it's seen in the way we, we speak, the way we act. But at the center of Paul's summary is the climax. There is none who seek after God. All are gone out of the way. There are none who seek after God. All are gone out of the way. All our aspirations and desires by nature lead us from God, not towards him. Friend, have you seen this to be true in your own life? That by nature you don't seek after him, but you seek after what your heart desires. Maybe you've been convicted at times. You've been challenged and you, you, you stand guilty. Your conscience speaks to you. You know that you should be seeking after the Lord, living, that you need Christ, that you're, you're out of the way. But then your worldly reasoning, sinful reasoning kicks in and, and you, you maybe say, but then I won't be able to do this or 
then I have to, there's no fun in that. And it's all about yourself. Or maybe Satan comes alongside and, and he tempts you and says, you have so many years ahead of you yet. Why seek the Lord now? You could do it in next year, 10 years from now. You have lots of time. Paul says, you are guilty. You are all under sin. You've all gone out of the way. With intention and with purpose, you are turning aside. You're doing what pleases you and not him. And this brings us back to Romans 1.21. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and the foolishness of their heart was darkened. There was a willful turning away from God to serve ourselves and our own desires. Friend, by nature, we are selfish rather than God-focused. We love our sin by nature and in seductive ways. We love running from God instead of towards him, towards life in him. This hasn't been a pretty picture of humanity so far. In fact, it is downright ugly and grotesque. But have you come to see yourself as such? Have you come to see that this is an accurate representation of who you and I are? The Apostle Paul doesn't rest just in this summary. He then gets into his, as it were, three exhibits of evidence. And the first one he concentrates on are words in verses 13 and 14. He turns to give concrete examples of the depth of our sin and in particularly focusing on the use of our tongues. His portrayal portrayal of how the natural man uses his tongue is unpleasant to the ears. Something we don't want to hear, he says, quoting from Psalm 5, verse 9, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The idea is the picture that's being portrayed is an open grave and that the corpse is being permanently exposed. And out of this comes the stench of death and destruction everywhere. And the implication is that Paul is portraying and quoting from the Psalms that God is portraying about our words is by nature what comes from our mouth is death, it stinks, it's rotten, it permeates with uncleanness. It's a picture of the bondage of our sin. But Paul says, going further, with their tongues they have used deceit. Deceit has been and continues to be the way of life for natural men. After our father, the devil, who is a liar from the beginning. We are prone to lie. We're prone to lie to ourselves, to other people, to God. And maybe, maybe as, as you, we sit under, in God's courtroom, you're saying, you're objecting. Maybe you're right, you're saying, I'm not as bad as you're saying. Well, I'm sure I do, don't do always, I'm not always good, but I'm not totally unprofitable. I'm not, I don't do 
all these things completely selfish, living it out for my own life completely. Friend, when you say this, you're bearing testimony to the truth of Paul's claim. You're lying to yourself, to God. Your heart is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17. And who can know it? You're demonstrating with your own words, your own guilt by your very objection. Paul then, he continues quoting from Psalm 140. The poison of asps is under their lips. Here Paul demonstrates that what comes out of our mouth is actually already in us. It proceeds from our very heart. A poisonous snake cannot be poisonous unless the poison is already in them. What comes from our mouth flows from our hearts. And then Paul, as as it were, concludes now quoting from Psalm 10 verse 7 whose heart is full of cursing and bitterness. And the emphasis in the original, in the Hebrew, in in Psalm 10, the emphasis is on the word full. In an ongoing way, our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's constantly being replenished like a fresh well of water. There's no reprieve. Calvin says, if they draw out what is actually in our hearts, the bitterness and cursing would just stream out. Maybe you're saying, I, am I really that bad? I don't have bitterness just streaming out of my mouth. Maybe we don't have it streaming out, but friend, the potential is there. The potential is there. And Paul, moving from words, he then shifts his attention to our actions. Does this in verses 15 through 17, and this time he quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8, and he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. The feet speaks of the idea of words that proceed from the heart are now being put into action, running. And swift speaks to the eagerness of our, the willingness of our hearts to actually do this. We willingly get involved There's no coercion. We are not being forced to to do what we do. We do so willingly. And we run towards evil, towards ways of death. By nature, we hate what is good and and right and and anything that promotes life. It may not be physical death that that comes out by by our hands and our actions, but... It may be, does it promote life, spiritual life? Just think of the the songs you listen to or the movies you watch, the websites you visit. Do they promote life, spiritual good, spiritual life, or do they promote death? Are they for your spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of others? Or do they detract from your walk with the Lord? Paul continues, quoting from Isaiah 59, Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Friends, it's easy to look around us and the culture around us and and 
be able to pinpoint this very fact. Destruction is in their ways and peace they have not known. We recognize this in, in our culture all around us. From the killing of babies in the womb to the breakdown of marriage and society to the promotion of unbiblical views of sexuality, the promotion of the homosexual agenda in our nations, the promotion of the cancel culture movement with all its violent activities. Friends, it's easy to point fingers at other people. But the question is, do we see the root of all these actions in our own hearts, in our own lives? And and in what way do our actions promote death and destruction? Let's bring it a little closer to home. Parents, do our examples, does our walk match our talk so that when our children watch us, does it promote their spiritual well-being and life? Or does it send mixed messages about serving the Lord? Or maybe in our business practices, do they, are they in discord with the Word of God, departing from ways of peace? Friend, in what ways do destruction and misery find themselves present in our life? In what way has the promotion of peace been hindered by the way I live? At this point, maybe there's still someone here who is objecting, saying these exhibits of words and the exhibit of actions that you have been speaking about, they don't reflect my life. Friend, I pray that your eyes would be opened to see your heart for what it is. But in many ways, Paul anticipates your objection. Because in our third, his third exhibit, in verse 18, he gets to our very thoughts. From Psalm 36, verse 1, he quotes, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, this deals with the perspective of our life, the, how we think about life and about living. By nature, our perspective on life is selfish. It's ungodly. By nature, we don't fear the Lord. By nature, we, we'd rather do our own thing, go our own way, and, and live it up. There was no fear of God before their eyes, continuing to quote from Psalm 36. Friend, without the fear of the Lord, we do not have wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the the psalmist says, is the beginning of wisdom. And without this perspective, we we are lost, we are aimless. We are like one of those early modern or early planes prior to modern navigation systems that needed the horizon to be able to fly, to, to, to have their bearings. Without the horizon in view, they, they had no idea of what direction they were going. It would have been a disastrous ending. And so planes did not fly during cloudy, stormy nights or during where the horizon would not be visible. It would fly below the clouds. We need a God perspective on our life so that we have direction for ourselves. J. 
John Murray says, the absence of this fear of God means that God is excluded not only from the center of thought and calculation, but even from the whole horizon of our reckoning. God, he says, is not in all our thoughts. Figuratively, he is not even before our eyes. And John Murray then says, this is unqualified godlessness. And friend, it's at this point that the Apostle Paul rests his case of presenting the evidence, a scripture-filled evidence, an evidence that leads to his conclusion, to God's conclusion over us. And Paul brings this case to a close in verses 19 and 20. And he says in verse 19, what things soever the law saith, what things soever the word of God, whatsoever things the scriptures speak to the issue in hand. Paul has just quoted from a handful of Psalms and from Isaiah 59. He could have turned to many other passages in scriptures. And he says, whatsoever things the whole corpus of Scripture says, what does it say? All those under the law, remember that's you and I, all of humanity, we are all under sin. He says that this testimony, he says, we need to come under and recognize so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Friend, this is the only proper response for you and I is to fall down before the Lord of the heavens and the earth to confess that we are guilty before him. To bow down before the judge of all people. There is no room for excuses. The testimony of Scripture has been convincing. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Friend, if it's going to be well for you for eternity, if you're going to know the comfort of that the catechism speaks of life in life and in death, then you must come to this conclusion for yourselves that before Almighty God, you are guilty on all accounts. Have you come to see this for yourself? The Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. He says, by the deeds of the law, verse 20 there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But not only are we we're absolutely guilty before God, there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do about this. We cannot earn our way back to God. But the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. You, by nature, are prone to hate God and your neighbor. From the word of God, the law, it reveals to us the knowledge of our sin. 
It is through the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, that a sinner is convinced that they are a sinner. Convinces us that we are condemned before God. And that there is no hope of salvation in ourselves. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are lost. Death is certain, for the wages of sin is death. But friend, when when the Holy Spirit begins to uncover our hearts and to show us who we are by nature, he also begins to show us that there is hope and there is life in Jesus Christ alone. This is where Paul leads us in the the verses that follow in in chapter chapter 3 and and gets into the glorious doctrine of justification by faith in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And then what it's to live out this life in Christ in the rest of Romans. And friend, I don't want to... I I need to go there and present the gospel, the good news, even in the light of all the bad news we've heard about ourselves. This is where Paul goes in verse 21 through the end of chapter. Let's read together those verses. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. By the entire corpus of Scripture, there is a righteousness in God, of God. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, referring to the the Greeks and the Jews, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God whom God has set forth to be the propitiation, the wrath removing through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him that believes in Jesus. Oh yes, friends, we are guilty But in Christ Jesus, there is hope, there is life, there is a possibility of being justified before God, being being presented as innocent and perfect in God's sight. Have you come to see yourself as a guilty sinner? That your your best works are stained with sin? Have you come to see that your sins deserve death, the wages of death? Or of sin. But if you come also to know that the Lord is a God of mercy and of grace, that He is the one who has made a way for sinners like you and I to be made right with Him, that there is a way back to Him through His blood and righteousness, through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to the end of our session in God's court this morning, where the Lord of the heaven and earth has amply demonstrated from his own authoritative word that we are condemned sinners in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts.
Have you come to recognize that this is something we don't readily acknowledge? In fact, we try to hide and suppress it. Have you come to see yourself as unwilling to acknowledge this? Have you come to see that you will not be, even be able to be declared righteous through your own attempts to keep the law? If not, I pray that the Holy Spirit would change your heart and life, would show you that you are lost, that you are gone out of the way, that you are not a profitable servant, that you are in need of grace and mercy. But if he has shown you this, if you have come to recognize by, because of his sovereign grace and mercy what kind of sinner you really are, and you've come to find forgiveness in Christ Jesus, I thank the Lord for his grace and mercy in your life. And I pray that as you go out and continue to live, you recognize that as believers, we are still called daily because the old man clings to us. We're called to put off the old man and to put on the new man. I pray that you will flee to Christ daily, time and time again for the forgiveness of sins, that you will experience his forgiveness and grace in the moments and times when you do fall, that you will continue to rest and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has justified you. And may you be more and more conformed to his image. For friend, in him, in him there is hope, there is life, there is everlasting life. And he desires us to live wholly for him every day of our life. As a friend, I began with the question, do you have security? Are you in the secure grip of a heavenly father because of Jesus Christ? Or are you still lost? If you are, come to him and know the peace that is found in him. Amen. Lord, we confess that we are guilty sinners before thee. By nature, we are prone to hate God and our neighbor. There is none righteous, thy word tells us. There is none that doeth good. All have gone out of the way. And we confess this to be true of our lives, Lord. But we are thankful that that was not the end of the story. There is hope in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We're thankful for our Savior. May each one here know him and love him and serve him. Find forgiveness, find life in him. Bless us in the rest of our Lord's Day. Thankful for the privilege of being able to gather and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.